0: Happy Monday. How's it going?
1: Hey, how are you?
2: Good. Good to see you, Sonny.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Anytime. Anytime. It's a special Halloween edition of the Monday Morning Data Challenge. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I didn't know if that was supposed to read something into that. Like, we're really scared of Sonny. Um, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what to read into that.
0: Yeah. No, we'll, we'll... yeah we'll make it a... All right, getting some feedback here. Cool. So uh, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro?
1: Sure. Um, I'm Sonny Rivera. I am the senior analytics evangelist for ThoughtSpot. Nice. Um, I've been in the data industry, gosh, for more than 25 years, I think. Nice. Uh, and I've worked in financial services. I've worked in uh, retail um, and really built a lot of cloud-based data platforms. So i uh, I was uh, really honored when Cindy Howson at ThoughtSpot kind of tapped me and say, hey, we've got this role for an evangelist to come and, you know, provide some thought leadership around data, modern data stack, data modeling, all things data. Would you be interested? So that's what I get to do. And I'm really, really uh, excited about being at ThoughtSpot. It's been about, I'd say, five months now.
0: So it's exciting. It really is. That's really interesting. Um it seems like evangelism sort of taken off as, I, I don't know, a new role, but a more prominent role for, for companies. I mean, walk us through that. Like what, what, what what's like a day in the life of an evangelist?
1: <laughs> go look at my LinkedIn profile and you'll okay. see like, Oh yeah, I was over here. One, I, I do get to go to a lot of uh, uh, conferences. I get to talk a lot about data. Uh, I'll tell you the way we've broken it down is to into three pillars. One is thought leadership. So, to to help others maybe understand what's happening in the marketplace and what's happening in the industry. So thought leadership is one. Two is helping with our customers and our prospects, right? So that's the the other pillar. And then the third is providing maybe uh, influence onto what should be in our product, helping our product understand better, maybe what should be in the product and what customers are seeing.
2: And you were working on data products in the '90s as well. So how um has the approach to like evangelism, getting people on board, changed since the '90s? What's your perspective on this? Well, I think
1: back then we thought uh, if we build it, they will come. Mm. You know, uh, so that was uh, one of those things. And I I think the the technology just has evolved so much, and it's not just the tech that we see, but the uh, approaches. I feel like I've been through this. Evolution of um, software engineering practices, data practices, all the way back from like, hey, let's go from functional programming to object oriented programming to maybe, you know, uh, service models now to cloud models to microservice models. Um, so I feel like I've been through a series of those evolutions.
0: It's really interesting. Let's talk about that too. I mean, the, uh, the title of uh, today's show is the intersection of software engineering and data. And I, I think you straddled uh, both sides in your career. I mean, walk us through that. Like what, 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 um, uh, what is the intersection of uh, software engineering and data?
1: Well, let me, let me back up just a second too. I'm going to yeah. tell you a little bit about me. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm a software engineer at heart, right? I came out of the software engineering space and, um, Some of your audience may be old enough to to remember those television guided weapons that we saw in the first Gulf War, like those TV guided. That was me. Right. So I wrote the software to process the images um, and then, you know, issue the steering commands to the the guidance system to drive those things. Um, And that, that was a really different world. Right. That was like hardware software right next to each other, writing in the lowest possible language we could write in, sometimes writing in assembly language to get the most uh, performance out of it. But I was always operating on data because we had these big grids of data and say, how do you get, you know, how do I do edge detection and track this particular change that, hey, the the weapon is here, it really needs to be there, right? Um, And how do I detect those changes? So, It was all about, it's always been about data, right, from from my perspective. Um, So I I think the the change that we see here today is that the data world has often thought of um, themselves as different and that, you know, because there's so much data or because there's data, you have to do these operations. Um, They didn't follow practices like unit testing or automated deployments or um, or encapsulation, encapsulating our data, right? Uh, or encapsulating processes. We tend to have these giant pipelines that do everything, right? And not maybe, hey, a semantic layer that in the software engineering world, we would say, hey, we're going to encapsulate something that can be reusable. That's, that's good. Or we're going to encapsulate, encapsulate something that is hard and difficult and complex and we'll put it in this one spot so we know how to deal with it, right? I think semantic layers are starting to add that in the data world instead of recreating it over and over. So love to hear your thoughts on that, Matt and Joe.
2: Yeah, yeah. Semantic layers are an interesting one. Um, I think there's been a lot of progress on this domain. Actually, right before the show, we were kind of talking about how um, maybe there's still some progress required to integrate proper... Data modeling into some semantic layer tools, um, and we're not talking like new technology data modeling or and such. We're talking like pretty old practices in terms of having primary keys and things like this.
0: Well, that seems to be kind of the theme, though. Too what I noticed in data is that um, I mean, I, I wrote about this too in some post a while ago uh, on LinkedIn. But basically, if you kind of want to know where uh, you know the data world's going, just look at where software engineering and, and lean, you know, uh, lean thinking have, have been for the last several decades. Uh, I think. Um, you know, the rise of uh, data ops, for example, right? Um, that, that's a good right. example of uh, you know, borrowing practices from DevOps, which actually borrowed all of its practices from lean. And so, you know, there's a very d- uh, direct lineage and there's obviously some, some separations, um, you know, and differences between the two, but uh, you know, it definitely seems like software because I think it's more immediate. To, as you say, there's a tighter coupling to outcomes uh, with application development. Like you write an app kind of has to work because people are using it. Data is much more of a it's a bit more nebulous in the sense where especially with reporting it's like okay so i I get data and i make a decision but what's the feedback loop right uh, between my decision and the outcome right whereas an application and software it's like you you'll know pretty quickly if you if the code that you wrote didn't work (laughs) because if it's a missile for example it's probably a really (laughs) bad thing so (laughs) well i will say this
1: too i think it does help for me to think about it in terms of maybe segmenting the the type of work we're doing into mm-hmm. am I doing yeah. application am I doing application modeling you know am I doing data modeling for applications right am I doing warehouse modeling am I am I modeling for a warehouse or am I doing maybe analytics consumption modeling mm-hmm. right so you can think of those as three layers maybe source systems warehouse and then out here at a consumption yeah. layer at your analytics layer but they're not always the same and they don't necessarily always have the same practices. Correct right? Or the same disciplines,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: So um, I, I think the other thing I see is, and, and you kind of mentioned this in the title uh, of, of the show, is talking about first principles a bit. I think we've, we're we moving so fast that maybe uh, analytics um, and analytics engineers aren't as familiar with the, the body of knowledge around Uh, modeling and around computing in general that maybe they take for granted some of those things that, that I wouldn't have
0: taken for granted all, all those years ago. Mm. Why wouldn't you have taken those for granted many years ago?
1: Well, uh, example, um, like in the defense industry, my first computer had an eight inch floppy disk, right? My calculator had more RAM in it than my computer did. Right. So every byte counted, right? Every bit of CPU counted. And so we, we thought about those things. um, And, you know, maybe we had a tighter understanding um, at the OS level of what's going on. So I, I think technology has abstracted a lot of those away, like nobody, and I love it. Like I'll never open another computer again in my life. Right. But um, we've abstracted those things away, but in in that abstraction, we've kind of lost like what's happening underneath. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean to performance? What does it mean to scalability? What does that mean to maintainability of what we are doing? Right. Um, so that did that answer your question at all?
0: <laughs> yeah, it answered my question. You,
2: you... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, do you? Let me ask you this about data: What were there more standard practices like? Early two thousands, nineties than we have now. So I think that was another thing that came up in our earlier discussion. Is like we're we're training a new generation of people in analytics, but maybe the training is still a bit incomplete in some cases.
1: You know, I think part of that is um, again the whole space is evolving. We used to be, you know, data architects were gods. You know, um, maybe they often worked on their own,s and 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 they they said, thou shall do this, they put their hand up, you can't get in here, you can't get this database, you can't get access, you have to do exactly that, this thing's a specific way. Um, And sometimes that could be good if they were a good architect, but sometimes it could be bad as well. Um, But with the democratization of data, having so many more people in that space, I do think the expertise around data modeling and some of these data practices Have gone underserved. Mm. So I I have a a, a prediction that this is going to change, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, uh, I see Chris tab is on, uh, you know, on the comments here. And he brought he talked about bring back data modeling, right? We, um, we did a show on that, there was so much engagement on that show, it still resonates today, people are calling me, emailing me asking me, Hey, what do you think about this particular approach in data modeling? Mm. Um, so, I do think maybe there weren't, you know, back to your question, Matt, the, the standards were probably enforced individually. Um, but I, I hope we get to the point where we have programs where people have a standard body of knowledge, then they can start, you know, thinking about modeling um, and adding value to the business and those outcomes.
0: But I also think there, there were less options available back in the day. So, I mean, you could choose your handful of books, right? So, you know, the big <laughs> ones were like, you know, COD, uh, you know, if you're into relational modeling or, um, you know, uh, Inman Kimball for data warehousing. And that was basically it, right? You didn't have a, it was always like having the three TV channels back in the day. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, there's no shortage of opinions. I mean, I posted a, a you know, um, something on LinkedIn, just asking about data modeling. You know, if you were to wave a magic wand in the next book on data modeling, what would it be? And um, wow, uh, there's a lot of opinions on data modeling. I mean, every, everybody who seems to have written, uh, you know, either a successful, uh, you know, book or article or, um, you know, occasionally very, you know, very esoteric books and articles come out of the woodwork and like, well, this is the one true way of doing stuff. And so I think there's also a lot of competing notions, um, especially in data modeling. Where I, I, I've, I've rarely seen Um, an area of data that I think is um, so uh, fragmented um, and uh, where I think there are strong opinions held strongly. Uh, And and so it it was definitely a bit uh, interesting to to see the feedback on that. But I I do agree. And anecdotally, too, I I, I had a chat with um, with some friends that went to Coalesce, uh, the the DBT conference, and overwhelmingly they said what they noticed echoes what you were saying about, um, you know, sort of the the lack of recognition of data modeling where the... uh, I guess there were some, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of talks on on uh, dimensional modeling, for example, and the, the number of people who, you know, again anecdotally, um, you know, that were aware of dimensional modeling was, was uh, pretty small. But when you consider this is a is a a conference dedicated to transformations of data, for example, then it okay. So where's where's the uh,
2: where's where's the gap here? Yeah. And, and Sonny, you used the word democratization, which I totally agree with. We are in an era of democratization, but we also need the the corresponding governance, right? And governance is an issue across the board. So for example, Chris Tab also posted over the weekend about snowflake costs. And he said, well, if in the middle of the winter, you leave your windows open, you're going to have really high heating bills. And that's another area where we need governance, right? A lot of the cost issues with Snowflake come down to the fact that we have democratization without any governance. Well, it's without really, any easy controls. it's really easy to do stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And same thing with data models. Like it, it's great okay. that there's uh, a lot of freedom and flexibility, but it can lead to a lot of sprawl. We well, can throw a careful. compute behind it and kind yeah.
0: of mask the, yeah. the problem too. So it's like, I can just throw like a, you know, a 6XL Snowflake instance and like, sure it'll run probably fast. My bill will probably be really expensive, but whatever, (laughs) what's Yeah, And that
1: that comes right back to kind of first principles again to me, right? So one, the realization that, you know, bad data design can overwhelm any hardware, any system that we have. Oh, yeah. Would you like me to crush Snowflake? I can crush Snowflake, right? And make it unresponsive, right? In our particular, uh, you know, within our budget, right? So I, I do think folks understanding things like, what does it mean to have uh, a running time of a linear running time, a big O notation that's constant or linear or quadratic, you know, or cubic, right? So this is an interesting one, Joe, you might, you might like this. Um, Did you see where the folks at, at uh, DeepMind have unleashed their, uh, their AI algorithms or I don't know what you want to call it, their AI on fundamental math problems. So they said, we're going to have, you know, our deep mind learn how to do matrix math, which is the cornerstone of all of our machine learning. It's a cornerstone of almost so many computer uh, programs, things that we do, graphics, processing, machine learning, GPUs, um, and see if it can learn how to do matrix math better and faster and improve those algorithms. And sure enough, DeepMind has uh, learned how to do uh, matrix math uh, 10 to 20 percent faster than it's been done over the last 50 years. Right, so that has some big implications, right? Like, what if we turned those those types of algorithms loose on data modeling?
0: Mm. On Engineering. I mean, you have a PhD in math. I mean, you're probably more qualified than any of them. Oh, but
2: it's it's like pure math. It's not like pragmatic. <laughs> oh, computing. it's not it's <laughs> it's fake not, math. That's okay, no, it's an interesting <laughs> question, though. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. What would that look like? And I guess the question would be, what are you optimizing toward? Like if you hand over some of these algorithms or data model to some kind of deep learning, like what, what do you tell it to optimize for? Do you want to optimize for efficiency of specific queries? Do you want to optimize somehow for like understandability of the data, simplicity of writing queries? Yeah.
0: I mean, well, it's actually, we, I was working at an auto ML startup way back in the uh, early 2000s. And we actually were working on something like this where, uh, the whole notion was get unseen data sets, either from databases or files and, you know, come up with predictions. But then the notion was, well, what if we could speed up the idea of, um, you know, searching a database and, and figuring out the, uh, the, the relationships between stuff. And so that was um, one of the uh, attempts. It's really hard. Um, turns out. So, uh, but yeah, I could, I could see, I mean, you know, AI is sort of eating the world with everything else, you know? Um, uh, so I could definitely see something like this working, although, you know, purists would say, you know, that's, that's sacrilege, and it's it's sort of like when people uh, you know thought books would be the end of um, and writing would be the end of a uh, human thought. So, <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting that they chose this particular problem to go after, yeah. Right?
1: That and it that's in the cornerstone of ML and AI, right? So, and the big the big challenge we see from an AI perspective is I have to do huge matrix math to do. You know, uh, deep learning. I have to do these giant matrices of math. We we have to push that down at the hardware level to GPUs. Well, these new algorithms um, could actually be pushed down to the hardware level and improve the ability for us to do those cycles, to do those iterations within our, within our ML models. So, mm-hmm. but I do, I do think, um, I kind of go back to, you know, I was going back to that idea of do folks really understand when I do these particular operations? That is a quadratic operation and is not going to scale. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so maybe I'm losing the audience a little no, bit. No, no, but, here, I, but I think it's here. a good point
0: though, because especially when you can now do like iterations over um, SQL, for example, and you know certain data modeling um, tools, you know, it becomes important. Because what if you have like you know two. Three inner loops, right? Well, then you quadratic or cubic uh, time, and, and then that's um, well, you get to deal with that. But if you don't know what that is, right? No, like, oh, I'm just doing it because it seems like it's the right thing to do, and it could be. But you just got to understand the performance implications. But again, that's that's lost. It feels like with, with data, again, uh, at least in computer science, for example, you learn a lot of the uh, the kind of the fundamental principles of how things work. Um, with data, there's really no such training. It's like, okay, so here's how you write SQL. Here's how you make graphs and other stuff i mean what what else do you learn in data i mean we teach data sometimes but it's but it's maybe sometimes how to um uh i I feel like the training for data is typically very tactical but it's not very strategic if you know what i mean from from a technical level too now i'm not talking about like asking business requirements talking about like how do you strategically think about designing like you know a, a good workflow for data like that's
2: or not understood. Or a data model for the next several years that can evolve, right? Like that's often not understood. It, it seems like sometimes we teach the theory of data modeling, like third normal form, but then actually pragmatic data modeling maybe doesn't get taught so much. Yeah,
1: Right. And, you know, um, Joe, I've heard you talk about this in the past too, like incentives matter. Okay. Right? So when the business says, I need this data and all I want is just this these columns, I just want this one big table of data. So I can you know, put it in my spreadsheet or I can build a dashboard on whatever. Um, and I need it now, right? So, and, and oh, by the way, you're incented on that, right? Like you get bonuses, you get more revenue, whatever those things are. So what do we do? We do that tactical thing of getting that now, but ultimately we'll be crushed under the weight of it. And, and that's like a, a recurring nightmare that happens in the data space over and over. We, we want things now, we want things now, we do that to the point that we get crushed under the weight of it and we say, oh, now let's re- let's go rebuild our warehouse right. and redo this all over again.
0: Right. And then the business looks at it like, well, I've been getting my answers. Like, why do you have to redo stuff? Right. Like yeah. this is a waste of my time and money. Like, I just want my answers. Um, which is a push and pull, right? Of kind of the give and take of uh, you know, the the, the business and um, data teams. And it's Interesting, just because I think a lot of the same discussions that um, are happening in the same debates, whether or not, how do we add value with data, right? I mean, that, that's been a, a question from uh, day one, and it still seems very elusive, uh, I think, in part because there's a, there's a, a dichotomy almost between speed and rigor. You, you can move quickly and get you answers, but um, that's at the stake of, um, you know, potentially you know more rigor and, um, you know, uh, hardening things for, for the future. But, um you know but at the same time you know you 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 want to get quick wins with data because uh, otherwise you know the business is sitting there like well in have been building this data model for five years and what are you doing so yeah you know. and, and
1: i've been a part of those projects right where you're you know you're 18 months into this thing and you've delivered zero value right and your cio is saying to you you know when are we going to start seeing value the business is is, is going to cut funding because they're not getting any value out of this right so I think those days are past and we have to leverage the tech that we have. You know, we hear a lot of talk about the modern data stack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love what Chris Tab again says about that. It's like, it's the minimum set of tools needed to achieve these business outcomes around data. Um, and so I think we do have to leverage the tech for speed, but we, we can't lose sight of it's still an investment. And this is where I'll lean on maybe Kent Graziano, who talks about you're going to pay me now or you're going to pay me later. Right. So get on board with that um, and, and make sure that you're thinking of this as an investment with ROI, not just I need this right now. Maybe short term
0: investment. Mm-hmm. So, how do you how have you found that the best way to communicate this, though, to, to the business and the data teams? Uh, how, how can we all get along?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think one, I do think kind of breaking down the walls between us and them is um, is important. Um, when, when I was at um, uh, a, a company we, we, we actually had truck drivers that went out in the field right and, and they, uh, they helped people on the side of the road the car's broken down their batteries you know not charged whatever they've got a flat tire. they need to be towed. Um, I put data engineers and analysts in the trucks with the guy that was towing the folks, picking up the phone calls. And I think that idea of making sure that the folks that understand that they're working with the data understand what's happening on the front line, because what what happens on the front line ultimately matters, and those folks have to know and understand. So put them in that, in what I call the ditlock, right? A day in the life of, put them in there, they feel the pain, and, and sometimes they see things like, oh, if I just gave this person this one piece of information, they would be able to do their job better and the person doesn't even know right they don't even know that so i do think you know it's kind of like what 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 henry ford said like if i asked people what they wanted they'd say faster horses (laughs) right right yep so i was thinking of another example of that but it, it escapes me so It's my older age.
2: (laughs) Are there things that we can learn from like the software world and the product world here? Kind of like Joe was saying, where software always seems to be somewhat ahead of the data analytics side of things. Yeah, I I do think, I think testing is huge, right? Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Back in probably was the late 90s, early 2000s, you saw extreme programming come along, test driven development coming along. And I, you know, I love what DBT is doing there it's not quite test-driven development, but having those tests in place to me um, was so, why do I want to say this? It, it, it let me be free as a software developer because I knew I had a test and that I wasn't going to break something, right? Or if I did, it would be caught, right? So I think testing, that whole testing cycle and automated testing um, is invaluable and hopefully data teams gravitate Gravitate to that more. I'll give you one quick story too. This is, you know, I had some fun with this. Uh, ran a, a technology company, and you know, we were building software to integrate all these systems together. And we put in place. ThoughtWorks had this thing called I can't remember the name of the tool, but did our our CI CD. And whenever a build failed, we had a, a marquee like that's running across to the screen, like the bottom of the screen. And if the build broke, it would say the build broke this particular check-in, and it's Sonny's fault, right? And Ooh, everybody nice. in the company knew <laughs> that Sonny just broke the build. Um, you know, a we had, hey, the build succeeded, blah, blah, blah.
2: But, yeah. And it would say it was Sonny's fault. Or, or yeah, no. Incentives. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Would you get like a special award for getting your name on there for uh, breaking the build? Uh, <laughs> want, I think, yeah. I'm joking, but you want to reward, uh, um, I think, failures as well, right? Where you want to produce a culture mm-hmm. where um, if something breaks, um, hopefully it's not too catastrophic. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in testing, it's pretty harmless because it's a test, right? Like, you know, and you broke the build. Cool. Um, right. You know, Well,
1: but- yeah. And that the, the thing about this is like software, I mean, we saw this is straight we saw a bridge fail this over the weekend. I don't know if you saw this in the news like huge bridge just fell it had been remodeled. That that failure cost them, you know, cost lives, cost millions, maybe billions of dollars. Testing software and failing builds is free and we get to learn from that. So mm-hmm. yeah, we should do it often, right? And and it is free and what we get out of it is the learnings. It's not valuable if we don't get the learnings out of it. So
0: right. I mean, that's the whole point of testing, right? To try and break stuff. Like if you're playing it safe, then, you know, it's like pretty boring software. So,
1: yeah, I think what it does for for developers is it gives us the freedom to, to and the confidence to make a change. Like, have you ever had a data pipeline and said, man, I don't want to change this thing because if I mess one thing up, everything downstream is hosed, right? And, and so you have now developers that are actually, it takes longer. They're afraid to to change something, they'd much rather just say, well, let me just do a one-off and I don't have to change that thing. Right. Again, let's, you know, it, it, it starts that cycle of uh, doing things that we're ultimately going to be crushed under the weight of.
0: So if you, if you were to uh, wave a, a magic wand and, and then um, I guess change how uh, say analytics engineers or, or data people are, are, are trained, um, especially with respect to testing, like what would you, what would you do?
1: Well, it would it would be nice if you know maybe there were programs in colleges, right? And 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 maybe there are. There's <laughs> maybe, maybe they're
0: tuned are. on that one. Um,
1: <laughs> um I, I think that would be great. I I also think if you could um somehow get the training that went across, you know, the business that understood data to a certain level. Right. To the analysts that understood data at a certain level, the engineers that understood data at a certain level. And then, you know, that whole line of security and platform engineering, mm. uh, because the next biggest hurdle I've seen in data engineering is, you know, security. Oh, yeah. into governance, platform engineering, those things I've seen just bring programs to a halt. So, you know, to your point, like, can you make, make wave a magic wand? Well, okay, that thing that the data, the, the, business an- the business user needs is easily understood by the security analyst and the security architects so that they can enable it to happen. Because so many times you throw yeah. it over the wall and get to this gate, fight this battle to get the data into the platform, fight another battle to get it, you know, secured and even access to while maybe in the platform, nobody has access to it, right? So
2: that's yeah. my magic wand. But I, I think sure. a cultural shift is is very helpful in security. So like you were saying, so need yeah. to think of security yeah. as not a blocker, but an enabler, right? Even worse than a project getting stopped because of security is a project not getting stopped because of security and then discovering a huge security hole after the fact. How many times have we seen that happen never happens yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you really do want this like collaborative culture to say security is not here to slow us down. it's here to make sure that people can get access to what they need to in a secure way with not without compromising the business without compromising our customers. And if you can have that kind of collaborative environment, I mean, things really can move a lot faster. And in the, in the long term, you can get so much more done. Um, it's easier said than done, but it, it goes back to what you were saying of like combining all these teams on the data side and getting them on the same page and moving in the, them in the same direction. And then bringing that security vertical in as well to be a stakeholder in the project and, you know, giving them basically giving them incentives to be a part of the success while also protecting data is really critical. Josh Gallen
0: has a comment here too. Um, We don't have academic training as data engineering, do we? Um, uh, Stay tuned on this. Um, It turns out that um, because the book that we wrote is doing pretty well, um, data engineering is, uh, um, a lot of universities are very interested in this right now. So stay tuned. Um, And uh, Chris Tab says the uh, next level of data ops maturity is data sec ops. Data sec
1: ops. You can use some capital letters there, Chris. But yeah, data yeah, some more core capital. <laughs> uh,
0: nice one. Um, so. You
1: know, yeah. I, I'll, I'll comment on on Matt. You know, one of the things I said was like, if these other groups, security, new data, but it goes the other way, right? Their data engineers need to understand uh, from a security's perspective what they're asking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it does it does go both ways. And in the security infrastructure world, I don't know if you guys have heard this term a bit. They they talk about shifting left. Right? Yeah. Your, your security left, right? Okay. Um, I think if data in, uh, engineers need to understand that. Analytics engineers, tooling companies need to understand that because it does make it easier when your tooling can leverage the governance that you have in place already. And it just kind of easily flows instead of recreating it for doing service accounts or whatever else that is a, a huge security gaping hole.
0: So we see data engineering shifting left too. I think that's our premise where um, it has the word data in it, but I think just the tighter integration with um, you know software engineering, for example, and, and the people creating the source data and managing the source systems, that's becoming more paramount. Um, and to the point, I, I, I guess it may be indistinguishable at some point. It's I possible. think software engineering is becoming more data-oriented and vice yeah. versa. I mean, um, that's just sort of how it seems to be going so um i hope it's the way it's going i don't know because it feels like right now data engineering sort of exists on its kind of own uh, island or, or silo um even though we you know, again, again wrote the book on it i don't really have a vested interest in terms at the end of the day these things change but reality is that it, i think things are shifting more left and so but if you can get things more uh, i think at the application layer and security there and you kind of solve um potentially um you know a lot of downstream problems maybe so security has to exist across the entire uh, data life cycle of course it's something that's paramount so
1: yeah it's paramount it's a huge risk for companies today right and so you can understand why companies are uh have these big programs in place and and are gun shy right so yeah huge risk so Mm
2: -hmm. you know oh go ahead Oh, I I was going to say, I think the problem in security culture is that it's become a compliance issue rather than a proactive, like product development issue. And again, if I think if we can reorient and say security is part of making data available and part of being successful it's not just checking a box it's not just going through reviews all the time security engineers are actually involved in product development in helping the company to succeed while still protecting things and again kind of kind of repeating myself slightly here but i feel like it's setting an an important message that we have to keep reiterating it maybe so
1: you know i've seen a number of of products um you know and and they're being promoted on their their ads on television and they're actually actively promoting their security right like and, and because it's becoming a, an issue with me as a consumer. What's mm. happening with my data? You know, is it being shared everywhere in the world? Is my credit card ending up over here? Um, so I, I think it's becoming um, a, a first person problem with the end consumer. And so that's even raising even more eyebrows.
0: A question here. Um, Leo asks, "Will uh, Python continue to be the dominant language of data engineering? How do you feel about strongly typed languages for pipeline development? Uh, thoughts? I, you know,
1: I haven't thought much about it. I do think Py- I do think um, Python will continue to grow. I mean, we see it being pushed into Snowflake um, it, as a first-class citizen within Snowflake. We see the same thing in DBT. You know, our Databricks has already had that in place, so I don't see it lessening." Uh, anymore. I do think um, we're going to see companies pushing to use their platforms more. And so the more tightly you can integrate that IDE with your platform, data, compute, security, right? You're kind of bundling all of those things together. I think you'll see more of that and not less.
0: Yeah, what do you think about
2: it? Well, and I think what we've seen is that data tools, as they've grown more abstract and easier to use, they have shifted toward Python, right? So let's look at Spark specifically. Um, say five or six years back, if you were a serious Spark user, you had to use Scala and you had to get into the guts of the thing. And now they probably tell you, well, if you have specialized applications, go learn Scala. But for the most part, your productivity is going to be much, much higher with Python. And I think the comment about strongly typed languages is interesting from the software development perspective. I think that there's been this growing constellation of outside tools in Python to make it a little more strongly typed, right? To allow type marking and type checking and test pipelines and such. So it'll be interesting to see if that approach really catches on to solve some of these problems while still letting Python be Python.
1: Yeah, and and I prefer more strongly typed languages. Um, again, I, I came out of a, a, a more hardcore software development environment. So uh, I, I would like to see that continue. But I mean, frankly, I'm not on the front lines anymore writing code, right? I, um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that how that plays out.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, and it's interesting. That Python's one of these things where I feel like the um, the language itself—it's it, you know—it's the second best language at everything, right? It's um, not fantastic um, at any particular thing, but it's it's good. Um, but I, you know, what I see is sort of the um, the next evolution might be you know, sort of a transition towards Rust, maybe or, or Go, JVM um, languages, I guess, if you really want to do that. Um, uh, but then. And the data science end, I find it's interesting too. Julia just broke the, um, you know, the top 20 in the Tayobi index. And so that's fascinating as well. Uh, I'd be very curious to see if, um, uh, you know, Julia starts taking Python share as well. But then again, you know, I mean, I I started a um, uh, Python meetup many years ago, co-founded it. And back then, Python was barely a top 20 language. and Now it's the number one language. And so you just never know how these things go. So, and and excuse me, um, hopefully there's not an issue with the uh, stream here. I keep getting a I know from Streamyard saying that the uh, oh, that's not is access, but I keep reconnecting it, and it seems to be it. So anyway, hopefully we're good. If not, um, we still have the podcast, so we we'll keep talking. Um, uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, interesting. Hmm, well, Streamyard LinkedIn is just one of these things where it's it's uh, it's a gamble. It, it usually works, and until it doesn't, um, so. But again, we we have the Spotify version here that people can listen to after the fact. So, um. Yeah, so I guess, you know, kind of bring it back to, um, you know, so let's talk about, uh, you know, business intelligence, right? This is, this is an area where, where you're working in right now. What what, what are some of the, the big trends you're seeing in BI? Well,
1: I, I think there's two that jump to the top of my mind. There's probably others, but two are uh, embedding analytics into applications. Um, and then the controversial topic of self-service analytics, which I don't know why it's controversial, but... Um, those are the two big trends that we see, right? I'm actually doing a, I'm doing a conversation tomorrow with someone about the, you know, how do you uh, do embedded analytics? How do you drive value? How do you drive adoption? You know, what are revenue models for embedded analytics? So that that's a big topic.
2: Are you guys seeing that? Embedded analytics are all over the place, basically, for us. I mean, we just see it's becoming more and more ubiquitous. And maybe even, to what Joe was saying as well, going further, data apps, where really you're not even separating the analytics layer very much from the application itself. Like, the application generates data and then immediately gets fed back into dashboards and user experience.
0: Well, yeah, but it's often the... And I had to to make these way back in the day, too, but it's often the software engineer that has to make these embedded uh, analytics. There are certainly libraries or, or tools like, you know, uh, thoughts that can do this but if you're using libraries especially the you know the, the software engineer is going to gravitate towards the, the, what they're comfortable with right so yeah. um you know it's um so that's really typically it's gonna be like a javascript uh, type of framework or maybe an iframe or something like that so um but then again it, it requires like close collaboration with the analyst or the data scientist because the software engineer probably isn't going to know much about anything they're just like cool i'll put this it, to them it's just a ticket right like i gotta i get this ticket i gotta put this on the page what do you want like
1: yeah like and, and I, I think um th- the other interesting aspect of that is like doing analytics um you know within your application your application data that's all great the other thing you see is someone say well wait a minute you've got all this information and i have all my own customers can i just upload my customer list and see um, if we can match that information and have the analytics appear within your application You know, maybe you have, you know, I know buying behaviors, whatever, against my existing customers. Can I match those things up and do my analytics and say, oh, you know, these are the type of people you need to be going after. Interesting. So I I think you see that the mixing and, you know, another trend in data might just be outside of BI might be data sharing, right? I think the, the way we share data, obviously privacy of that, but data marketplaces and the ability to share data seamlessly. Without FTPs, without this complexity, um, will have big implications on embedded analytics because all of a sudden I can get, you know, weather predictions. I can get outputs of machine learning models and forecast integrated into my embedded analytics that I'm putting mm-hmm. up to my customers.
0: It's it- a whole world of possibilities at that point, too. It's it's really cool. Once so uh uh Kate trashny says you're the one she's speaking with tomorrow, so that's awesome. Uh <laughs> shout out to Kate too for finishing on the, she's the finish line for the uh her book color wise. So, oh, um, congratulations, yeah. That's a huge
2: deal. Yeah, yeah you take awesome. a vacation when you finish. <laughs>
0: awesome. Yeah, or starting another book, whatever. or start another book. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I,
1: I should have brought that up. I'm sorry, Kate. I should have mentioned I will be on Kate's show tomorrow, so everyone. Please tune in. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: Yeah, that's I think the embedded analytics use case, it opens up a whole new world of opportunities. And that's, um, I think, uh, very exciting. Because it feels like analytics is just moving away from the, the world of dashboards, kind of internal facing BI. I mean, there's still a, a time and place for that. But just given the nature of um, just how ubiquitous data is and the needs, it's, it's changed a lot. You know? and, um, but I feel like we're only at the beginning of this too. Like I, I can't say like we're at the, at the, the plateau of where embedded is. Um so I don't Yeah,
1: know. if you follow that to a lot, its logical conclusion. You may think of you know, you may hear the term headless BI. At that, yeah, point, let's right? talk about yeah, that real yeah. quick
0: too, right? For for the audience, what what is uh, headless BI? <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: not my. <laughs> it's expertise. it's Halloween
0: too, so you know. Uh,
1: right. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's really not my forte, um, actually. So I I actually have to do some research in that space. But the idea is that you wouldn't actually have to have you know, an, an analytics tool with a user interface to provide that business intelligence. Um, and you could embed that directly in your application, or you can use declarative code, right, to just roll out your analytics against maybe um, a semantic layer, right, <laughs> that would know how to pull that data and visualize that data. So uh, not my forte just yet. Um but uh, that's kind of how I see it.
0: I think it's good, though, right? In some ways, because it, it removes the um, I, right now. It feels like BI is very, um, it's very monolithic. And obviously, you work for a, a vendor, um, you know, a very fine vendor. For a full disclosure, we're, uh, we're actually partners with ThoughtSpot as well, so big fans. Um, but what we, but I've, what I've seen over the years, and this is no, no uh, epiphany or whatever, but it's just BI tools are very monolithic. It's how it is. You're, you get one BI tool, you're going to use it. Um, that's kind of how it is. Headless BI, I think, opens up a lot of possibilities where now I can say, okay, I'm going to define my data here um, and I can kind of use whatever implementation detail after the fact. I think that's, you know, pretty, uh, pretty game changing and and pretty cool. So, you know,
1: I think it's a, I don't think it's honest, but I think it's a trend that's coming right. And semantic layers to me are a part of that. And even at a, I'll go one step more abstract Um, metadata layers. Mm. that just wrap in general. So your semantic layer is effectively a metadata layer around your models and your, your semantics. But you can go in another step higher and just have metadata layers for almost everything. How do my tools integrate metadata layers for my security metadata layers for um, my API's? Right? So how do you in- data contracts or another concept of a, of, of a metadata layer? Mm-hmm. Right? So I think all of these things need to mature before you get to a true kind of headless BI world that you're talking about that is seamless, if you will.
2: And then we talk a lot, Joe and I talk a lot and probably you do too, about the uh, emergence of more and more real time. And it's not that real time or streaming is a new thing, but it's gonna become much, much more ubiquitous as it's more turnkey in cloud services. So just like Snowflake has made data warehousing and big data, as much as I hate that term, more ubiquitous. Um, a lot of these turnkey, like CDC services, will make it very, very easy to just do in- direct integration of your applications into a real-time analytics. Well, and area. event systems too, Yep. Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, this is an area that I um, I want to know more about from a modeling perspective, because
2: oh, yes. as we're bringing <laughs>
1: data in, right? Yep. Like, how do you model that piece? And how does, you know, yes, you could logically model it, what does that look like from an implementation perspective that you can maintain the, the nature of real
2: time? Mm-hmm. And part of what we've talked about, and at this point it's more of a philosophical discussion because we, you know, it needs to happen as a practical matter to make it really concrete, but just the idea that if you if your applications are more real-time, then the modeling actually needs to start in the application itself. And of course, people do model data for applications, but think typically they're thinking about application problems. And in the future, if you know that that data is going to be consumed immediately, then you need to model it both for your application and for the analytics that are going to come after. driven with domains and
0: bounded context, yeah. right? So yeah. the, the events need to be very discrete yeah. and probably as small as possible, right? And so it's, um, you know, it's thin models versus fat models for for yeah. events. But then how do you translate this into analytics? You know, the systems like Druid, Pino, and ClickHouse, whatever, that do this, I think, very well. But it eschews a notion, typically, of like a, a dimensional model, which is... Sort of how traditional, um, you know, data modeling people would, would think about analytics. Um, you know, when you ask people who design these systems, you know, do you do you model your event data? Like, definitely not. Which also brings up a whole can of worms. Okay, so how do you how does this work in reality? Schema evolution and uh, definitions and so forth. Data contracts I think are a way to, to help uh, you know solve this. But I feel like that's um, one part of many that you know we're, we're going to be unfolding very soon. So, um,
1: yeah, I think you're right. I, I do think. Um, having that kind of bounded context, modeling it at the application layer, prepared for it to, to be headed into analytics. And then I think if you have that, again, you get back to that metadata layer, right? So yep. you're, you're going to need some tool agnostic way yep. to communicate how to interact with this data, whether it's real time or rev, whether it's, you know, batch.
0: Well, was a Ragu's was uh, Raghu's um, article from a couple of years ago. I remember Raghu Murthy, mm-hmm. um, you know, metadata first architecture and so
2: forth. I think he was, he was to something back then with that too. Well, so, and I think there has been a big shift toward more integration, right? Like we think about tools like Informatica that could do a lot of this stuff, maybe not real time, but they were monolithic And in the cloud. You have to assume that you're going to have data in a lot of different places and you need orchestration and metadata management across a lot of different systems. And that's kind of one of the big challenges of our era actually veronica has a good question
0: here um she's late to the party um but how do you integrate real-time data with other data oh this is this is fun Uh, matt you want to talk, talk about uh maybe an early attempt at this called lambda yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, Lambda Architecture, if you're familiar with it, it was the idea that you take all of your data, whether it's real time or not, and you put it into a streaming system like Kafka. And then um, either you can play through that data in, in a real-time fashion, like play. Is that more Kappa that you're describing? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I am I am describing Kappa. Sorry. Yeah. I'm I'm jet life still. So Oh yeah, he just got back from France. So, you know. Um... But no yeah. lambda is a
0: separation of yeah. basically yeah. your real time and, and your um, your batch data right yeah but what it did is it caused a divergence of data right. systems and so within Kappa what you're describing is um, basically just everything's in a you know, an event stream yeah. yeah yeah right but um but it's interesting too because I mean there, there's ways you could definitely join the data together yeah. you know stream and you know, maybe pull data from a you know s3 bucket or, or query you know a, you know a table or something are, are you seeing a lot of these kind of hybrid um you know real-time batch use cases in, in your line of work Sonny? I don't think
1: we're seeing the hybrid world. And and as much as everyone is talking about real-time, there's not a lot of real-time analytics. There's a lot of real-time data, right? But there's not a lot of real-time analytics that we're seeing. Mm, um, unless it's a specialty application, right? Like, oh, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm monitoring these particular events, um, you know, I've, these IoT devices, but I don't see... Um, you know, business users needing real time analytics for, I, w- I want to make this decision. How's that, you know, how's that tractor running in the field in Northern o- in Idaho? I, I hadn't seen that a lot of that.
0: And the question is always, what are you, if you had real time analytics, like what are you going to, what action are you going to take, say that you get data, data every nanosecond on a report? Like what, what can you possibly do with that?
1: Yeah. I, I, and the, the problem is that the answers are usually you need something in aggregate right to give you a trend to give you this metric and so you start to lose its nature of, of real timeness as you aggregate over time um and then to get down to the individual event it is a hard problem i i don't know that i have an answer
0: um i saw this at one company i worked at so we um we were doing um you know a lot of event data and whatnot and But the the thing that I realized is, okay, so if it's like a what or a when type question that you're trying to answer, just why don't you automate the action to respond to that? And then just tell me what you did afterward. Like, I really don't care. Like, if I need something to be done, like, why don't you just do it? Like, you're a robot. So just do robot
2: (laughs) things and, like, deal with it and so and that so you're almost talking about like systems control at this point and so where real time is really critical so almost like you collect data on the factory floor and then tune the machines in real time and so maybe doing it at the, that at the scale of a business like tuning price well then an analyst other can other focus things. on like why
0: yeah, and causal yeah. type questions right instead of just you know uh like kind of just respond like reacting to things right yeah.
1: so i think the future of the analyst ends up being that they're optimizing that they're not mm-hmm. in the right? Um, I I think you'll see that more and more. And that happens with self-service too, which is not real time. But if you have an analyst prepping the data, business users, non-technical users using the data, asking their questions, doing their own analysis, right? The analyst becomes almost a coach or becomes Mm -hmm. an optimizer of that and not in the delivery cycle, right? Which is kind of what you described, Matt, Mm
0: -hmm. Self-service. Let's talk about that for a second. I think this is, this is uh, it seems like almost a utopian ideal for self-service analytics. Um, ha, ha, how have you seen this work in practice? So one, I, it's, I don't think self-service analytics is a,
1: you know, it's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. It, all of your analytics is going to go through self-service. But if you could take those things where, where we've seen success is businesses say, I see a lot of uh, churn, a lot of questions in this particular area of my business. Um, And we have a large backlog, right? Can we do anything to spread that workload to, you know, the business user? Let them ask and answer their own questions. And this kind of takes you away from one big table, right? It starts to say, hey, I need a real dimensional model Mm -hmm. that, allows the business user to ask a series of questions or do a series of analyses in a domain, right? So that's where we've seen the most success. Um, saying, hey, self-service business user, build your own machine learning model to forecast X, Y, and I I don't see that anytime soon.
2: Yeah. We talked about this some in our book. There's there's a big issue, a big cultural issue around self-service analytics. And that is you do have people who really want to be able to build their own even data models and reports and things. But then many parts of the business just don't want this functionality. It's like, no, no, go go answer this question for me. I don't want to be doing this on my own. And then you get, sometimes you have resource constraints that if you're putting extra effort into building self-service analytics, you might not actually have as many resources to serve pre-built reporting needs and such. Hmm. It's interesting.
1: You know, I've seen this, you know, you can kind of see people say, Well, well, I don't want to do, I don't want to give up the this work because I'm actually giving my job away, right? Mm, But what I've seen is business users don't want to do data modeling. Yeah, they don't want to be data engineers. What do business users want? They want answers to their questions so they can take actions and do they're not interested in your job. (laughs) Right? Right. What what the way I would position that is. You know, hey, you know, Joe, you're this analytics engineer or you're this data engineer. I can now put you on maybe higher order challenges instead of the monotonous, can you tell this to me by X, Y, and Z metric or by X, Y, and Z dimension? All right. So I can maybe put you on higher order, more impactful uh, mm. analysis.
0: Yeah. So before data got really hot, it was just like people. Like myself or maybe like you were just answering questions it wasn't really like hey you're the, the data team or something like that it's just like you're embedded in a business function and you're here to help the business do its thing and so i think along the way maybe too it's become um uh, i don't know what do, you, what do you how would i describe this data has become kind of more um, i guess front and center but maybe cool along the way now, see, right yeah it's, it's a cool. buzzword
2: there are a million buzzwords around data and so sometimes that causes us to overhype what it can actually do without Putting a lot of resources. Yeah, it's a full contact sport at the end of the day. You want the business involved, you know. But
0: again, I think uh, Sonny, you put it perfectly. Like nobody really cares. Nobody's going to take your job. Like (laughs) if anything, (laughs) you know, you can level up and do cooler stuff. So,
1: well, I I think you know the word data, whether it's buzzword or not, it's it's in the boardrooms and it's you know on the lips of the CEOs every single day. Uh, Maybe that is partly because of the hype that they see, but you know, we do see real value in the marketplace. We do see a gap between leaders and laggards. Mm. Right? And so, you know, leaders are outperforming their laggards, you know, by considerable numbers, whether that is in revenue, in, you know, share price, however you want to to measure that, there's a number of metrics that are showing if you're a leader in data, you're outperforming your competitors. Absolutely. So, so I think that that's probably why, Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know that self-service analytics solves all the problems, but if you can put it into a domain, um, and say, we can drive a lot of value here, it'll make business users happy, lighten Uh, the load on your data team so that they can work on other things. That's the biggest value I've seen so far and the most success.
0: Right. That's really cool. Well, coming up on time, um, for people who want to learn more about you, how, how could they do that?
1: Um, well, you can follow me here on LinkedIn. You know, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. You can find me on Twitter. Nice. Uh, a strange handle, RQR or RQ Rivera. If you if, <laughs> RQ Rivera, you can find me on Twitter. If you, um, uh, yeah, if your name were Rosaro Q Latin, you would go by Sonny. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, and then you can find me on ThoughtSpot's blog. Uh, I'll write some pieces there as well.
0: Any events that you'll be uh, appearing at pretty soon? Oh, yeah,
1: so good, good. Thanks for calling that out. I'll be on Dedicated tomorrow nice. with Kate Stretchney. Uh, I think, I'm uh, not exactly the t- time. I think it's at noon. Kate, you can put a comment in there and let us know. It, it, it'll be on LinkedIn, but I think it's at noon tomorrow. So can, can I ask you guys one question? Do we have time for me to ask you guys? one? Yeah, thing? go for it. Um, you you both seem so well read. I'd love to know what is it you guys are reading. What are you thinking about and reading today?
0: Oh, cute dog.
2: um What are you reading? That I mean, I, I tend online to like follow Hacker News and such, and then read lots of different medium posts. A... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You can <laughs> like definitely get... in the lightning on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah well, Jeez. I mean, I think everyone <laughs> does that. A lot of stuff on LinkedIn, obviously, and then a lot of it is just maybe conversations as well. I mean, what do you think? Hey, You're you, you a book guy, are you an article guy. Like, what do you uh, it tends to be more articles these okay. days, yeah. And I
0: tend to be more book focused, and so I, I probably have any like probably three books in rotation at any given time. So, you know, um, um, yeah, I don't know if you look at my book collection. I mean, so I'm, I'm uh reading a really good book uh the joy of compounding right now uh by Gautam bade he actually lives here in salt lake city when i get one of them sometime one of the best books i've ever read actually it's just a book about value investing but also sort of the um you know the traits of of a good value investor and a, just a, a lifelong learner and that kind of thing um yeah yeah I, uh, I don't know i read a ton <laughs> so uh it's scary how about you
1: um yeah i probably have a couple of books there's one i'm actually rereading i love and so i i I make this reference for everyone it's called algorithms to live by have you read Mm. the book
0: i have not no it's it's in my uh, got it on my uh, kindle i hope to read it it at some point
1: it's really about how computer scientists think and how you can apply that to your everyday world that's cool not the other way around right so um so it lets me justify to my wife why i have a huge stack of books next to my bed and i don't organize them onto a shelf (laughs) that's one I'm reading and then I'm actually um uh I don't know I reread stuff over and over again to try to 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 get them I'm I'm reading a book on data storytelling
0: again so Hmm. that's an interesting topic yeah
1: and so for another time I think we're probably getting up on time but yeah that would be the the I'll just my comment here was I'm a technologist and I really thought back in the day, I knew this metric, I could tell you something, maybe I show you a line chart and maybe I had these other metrics, but in my mind, I related them together and I knew the story. It wasn't until later in my career that it was like, Sonny, you have to be able to craft a story around this for people to get what you're you're saying.
0: Kate's asking what book you're reading on uh, data storytelling.
1: Oh, there we go, I have to pull from the stack.
0: It's there really you interesting. go. Interesting. Oh yeah, I've, I've heard about this book. So I don't know if Kate. Did you ever? I do if Kate actually had a, her on the show. So looks good. Yeah, I mean the problem is there's, there's, you know too many books in too little time, right? So yeah. might cheat too for books that I think are like um, nonfiction and like sort of a book that I you know want to listen to but don't want to read. Uh, I actually have the Kindle uh, that reads to you. So I'll just, <laughs> uh, walk around with that too. So. Uh, about one to two books a week is what i read and like, sometimes the, yeah. the cheat code is like have it just read to you um but one to two books uh probably actually you know most of the time just read period i read quite quickly um and uh hopefully comprehend things at least i like to think i do probably <laughs> probably gloss over everything but whatever so um awesome yeah i thought you have some book tips uh, i'm very curious the audience too if you have a book ideas or suggestions, drop them in the comments here. So. I,
1: will, I will put them out there. I'll, I'll share with you one thing too. And I'm, I'm kind of re-looking. This is tough. That TV. is such a good book. You know, if, if you do analysis, if you do analytics, this is, you've got to check this out. And then I would say he comes around town to the major cities every year, just does a tour and does, you know, hmm. a two or three day seminar. Go and see it. You, you'll learn so much from this guy. That's so,
0: one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. Uh, Edward Tuff's, it uh, um, was it, Quantitative Display of Visual Information or something like that? Yeah. Yes, that's it's, exactly. It's, right. a really riveting title, uh, but great book. So it starts off yeah. with a uh, graph of Napoleon's uh, journey into Russia, then, then back, um, where he lost all of his troops. So, ah.
2: cool. Yes, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. All right.
0: Well, we'll talk to you soon, Sonny. Thanks for being All right. The, uh, good <laughs> seeing you guys. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.